Well, we have a Bible with you. Please turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. Last week we looked at Psalm 16, which we could say is a proactive psalm, right? It says to go to his presence, pursue his presence, because there's pleasure in his presence. Psalm 18 is more reactive. It's praising God in response to what he's done, response to his care and response to his protection, in response to his power. That's the way it works usually. God reveals himself to us and we respond. He reveals himself in his character through his word, through the stories of his word, and what he says about himself, and we respond in faith and trust and praise. Psalm 18 is about that kind of praise. If you notice on your sermon notes page, there's an opening praise right there at the beginning, verses 1 through 3. It's a long psalm, so I'll introduce some categories before we do reading in each of these sections. The first section we could call opening praise, verses 1 through 3. Let's read that together. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. Well, these three verses are like a shorthand of the rest of the psalm. There's an opening praise, there's a closing praise, and then in the middle is David's story and experience of God's deliverance in his life. We'll get to that in a bit. But as we look at this opening praise, notice David is praising God that the Lord is a deliverer. A deliverer. He gives, I think, seven different ways of describing the Lord's deliverance. Notice in the end of verse 1, he says, The Lord is my strength. This theme is all over the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. This theme of God being strength and giving strength, even in our weakness or especially in our weakness. Maybe one of the best Old Testament passages like this is Isaiah 40, worth memorizing, I think. Let me just read a few verses from these well-known verses of Isaiah 40. It says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, and he gives power to the faint, to him who has no might, He increases strength. Even youths shall faint. It takes a long time for a youth to faint. They can go and go and go. But eventually even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. This is obviously not talking about physical strength here. It's not that... No matter your age, 90 years old or whatever, even older, that you could run the longest marathon by claiming Isaiah 40. He'll give strength. He can let you just keep going. No. No, no, no. It's talking about a better strength than just mere physical strength. He'll give us endurance, perseverance in the faith, 
so that we can mount up with wings like eagles. We can run the race of faith and not be weary. We can walk the walk of Christ and not faint. He gives strength and especially gives strength when we know that we need it. He's a rock, David says, back to Psalm 18. David says that God is a rock, and don't think small rock. It can either mean boulder or like face of a cliff, mountain, but it has to be big enough for him to hide in it. That's the word picture he's using here. The Lord is a refuge for him, right? The Lord is a place for him to hide. Rock means that it's firm, it's unshakable, it's not moving, it's not going to get rolled down the hill. So probably what we should think of when we see rock in passages like this in the Old Testament is sort of a, a fortress, that's the next word, a fortress of these craggy mountain caves. You've been to the caverns, what are those caverns called near Durango? Anyone know? What are they called? Mesa Verde, right. So you've been to Mesa Verde, perhaps, and you've, you've seen these caverns. These are dwelling places, right? Well, David would have known caves like that, and he would have thought them fortresses for his army as he's on the run, as he's preparing for the next battle. You go into one of these places, a rock, a refuge, a fortress, yes, to get out of the rain, yes, to, to get warmth with a fire, but also because there's no back door. The enemy can't sneak up from back there. There's no sunroof where they drop in. You'll see them coming. It's up high. You'll see them coming from far away. There's there's one entrance to it. Well, he's saying the Lord is like that. The Lord surrounds us. He covers our backside. He's, He's the one who lifts us up on an unshakable foundation. He's the deliverer, David says in verse 2. He rescues us in the midst of trouble. Notice how David is coming at this thing of God's protection and care from different angles. One being that God is a fortress so the enemy can't get to him. Another angle is that God is a deliverer when the enemy has gotten to him. He's a rescuer in the midst of trouble. He's a shield. He's David's protection. He blocks us from the arrows. He's a horn, David says. And this can mean a few different things. Likely what it means is just probably what you first think of, an animal's horn. An animal's horn is oftentimes his weapon, right? That's what he does battle with. And what David is saying by this is, the Lord is my weapon. The Lord is my sharp point. The Lord is the thing that defeats, conquers or protects me. The Lord is a stronghold, which means a secure place, a fortress that's buckled down and and secure. Now, you can meditate on each of these words, really, all the words in verse 2. A good way of doing meditation, Bible meditation, is to to just lift up one of the verses, I'm sorry, one of the words of a verse and and stare at it for for a while. So it would be like this. The Lord is my rock. He says, the Lord. You might notice in your Bible that's in small caps, Lord. Because the Hebrew here is Yahweh. 
God's name that he gave to Moses, which means I am. It's God's hidden name, God's special name, the name of God's self-existence, the name which the Hebrews wouldn't speak on their lips. And so we don't see Yahweh or Jehovah in our English versions. We see oftentimes the Lord, Lord being in all caps, and that's what David is saying here. He's referring to that name. Yahweh is my rock. Notice he says, Yahweh is my rock. And notice how often he repeats it. Notice how many my's there are. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God. Do you hear him emphasizing that this is personal? It's his God, not a God out there, not someone else's God. It's his God. And then you could go through each of these words like we've done, rock and fortress and deliverer, refuge, shield, horn and stronghold. Meditate on God's word. Meditate on how God delivers. And hence, it'll lead us to worthy praise. The Lord, he says, is worthy to be praised. In verse 1, he says, I love you. So intimate. In verse 2, he gives these descriptions of strength and help, which are themselves, in a sense, praise to God. And then he gives the conclusion When we can call on this God and he answers us, then, boy, he is worthy to be praised. If we're not praising him, it's that we haven't thought long and hard enough about his worth and why we should praise him. That's the opening praise. That's the summary of this psalm, and it leads really to the story, we could say. Secondly, the story of David's deliverance. Now notice the heading of Psalm 18, which we didn't read yet. The heading says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song, he wrote this psalm to the Lord, on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now when it says, on the day when the Lord rescued him, the day, that sounds like it's a singular day, I could give the wrong impression. This actually played out over decades. The story referred to there at the top of Psalm 18 begins in 1 Samuel 16 and goes all the way to the end of 2 Samuel. It probably unfolded over a period of 50 years. Now, you might remember, if you've been with us for several weeks in this series, remember Psalm 3, it had a special heading that described the context why David wrote that psalm, what was going on when he wrote that psalm. When we look back to 2 Samuel to see some of that context, well, let's do it again. You don't have to turn there, but let me just, let me just run through some things that's going on in David's life so we can put our, ourselves in his shoes and try to wrap our head around the difficulty that he's going through that the Lord rescues him from, that leads to this great praise. So if you go back to 1 Samuel 16, you find out there that that David is the least of eight brothers. The least of eight brothers. And Samuel, the prophet, is told by God that he should anoint one of these brothers as the next king of Israel. He doesn't know which one. David's dad, Jesse, 
He marches seven of the brothers out. David's the runt of the litter, you could say. And he just holds him back. Surely he won't be interested in him. He's the Cinderella, you know, when, when the guy comes with the glass slipper to try it on. Well, Samuel doesn't see any of these seven being the king. And then he finds out there is one more. This little guy with a slingshot. And sure enough, he's the one who's anointed at the age of 15. And very early on, it's clear that God's hand is upon David in battle. It's the very next chapter, I believe it's 1 Samuel 16, that gives the story of, of uh, David in battle with Goliath. And yet, as he keeps growing in battle, there's the king, the king of Israel, Saul, who's also David's best friend, and seething with jealousy for David. The saying went, Saul had killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So as he's more and more jealous of David, the threat of David's life is more and more clear. Eventually it grows to where Saul does outright, outright war against David, the promised king to come. Eventually it means David's troops against Saul's kings. Eventually it means that David is at the epicenter of a civil war for the people that God said he would lead, a nation he would rule. And it's probably another 15 years of that. 15 years of being on the run. 15 years before Saul dies toward the end of 1 Samuel. And then 2 Samuel begins and David is now made king, but things are far from peaceful. He still has ongoing wars with the surrounding nations. Each one of these surrounding nations could, humanly speaking, topple the kingdom. God keeps getting, giving victory, though. And yet there's trouble at home, trouble within the palace. Remember, we saw this when we looked at Psalm 3. And saw the context behind it. David's son, Ammon, ravages his half-sister. A few years later, Absalom, the sister's brother, full brother, kills Ammon for his heinous act. Then Absalom runs away for a few years, flees the land. He only returns to the land sometime after, but not as a family member, only as a citizen. Eventually, he's restored to the family, but... Then a few years later, it's clear that he's attempting to divide David's kingdom to yank the throne out from underneath him. So if you're David, you put yourself in his shoes. Your son forms an army against you. He forms an army of your people. He speaks lies against you. And you have to flee your capital city. You have to, you have to vacate your throne. And the horrible story only ends when your commander kills your son, even though you told him not to. And only then can David go home. Only then can he resume the throne. Oh, but then there's still two more battles in the book of 2 Samuel. Before you get to 2 Samuel 22, which, by the way, is basically Psalm 18. 2 Samuel 22 is basically Psalm 18. There are just a couple 
of additions or adjustments made to it. It's likely that David wrote 2 Samuel 22, this praise to God for his deliverance first. And it was personal there. It was private, individual. And then it was made more corporate for the people of God to sing and put as Psalm 18 later on. But that's what the heading of Psalm 18 means when it says, the day when the Lord rescued from Saul and all his enemies. It played out over 50 years. So that's a thumbnail, a thumbnail sketch of the story of David's deliverance. We really need that so we can appreciate what we would maybe call the song of David's deliverance. The third thing in your notes, the song of David's deliverance. And really, that's the body, as I said, of Psalm 18. Except for the opening and closing praise, the beginning and end, the whole psalm is praise to God for what he's done in delivering David in various ways. David says, the Lord hears. He hears. Part of David's song of deliverance is that the Lord hears. Look at verse 3. He says, I call upon the Lord and I'm saved from my enemies. Look at verse 6. Similarly, in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for his, his help. And from his temple he heard my voice. My cry to him reached his ears. You have to know that God is glorified in the process of us asking and him answering you might wonder why we need to pray, why God's invented this thing called prayer. When he knows what we're going to need, he knows even what we're going to ask before we ask it. He often overrules our well-meaning requests with something better. It doesn't seem better sometimes to us, but we believe he has a divine and perfect will. And we know, like Jesus said, sometimes it's his will and not ours that he does. So you might wonder why we should pray. And it's true, God does sometimes do differently than we ask or respond more slowly than we would like, but it isn't because he doesn't hear. And David is proof that this is the norm, that sometimes God doesn't answer in, in our timing. Remember, Psalm 18 comes after something like 50 years of battle and struggle and horror and anguish, opposition. The whole majority of David's life, we could say, is, is one lived by faith in the midst of battle, awaiting the fulfillment of the promises of God that one day there would be peace on every side. One of the promises given for the promised land. So just like David did, we need to tuck the principle away that God is glorified in the process of us asking and him answering, even if it's in his own timing and in his own way that he answers. David's proof that God hears, he's near, he listens, he cares, and he truly does know what's best. So don't let... Him knowing what's best, slow down your asking. Keep asking. Like Jesus said, keep knocking at the door. Keep trusting him as you knock. The Lord hears. 
We also see in the song, though, the Lord intervenes. He intervenes. Verses 7 to 19 make up this section, and they give us a, what we could call a heavenly, cosmic, symbol-filled look at God hearing David and answering David and then intervening, rescuing. Not just rescuing, but also bringing retribution on David's enemies. Let's read a chunk of this. We'll read verses 7 to 14 to see this. This is how David describes God stepping in and doing something. He says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens. Literally, he tore open the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. We could keep reading. Really, the summary is in verse 9, that God cracked open the heavens and came down. Or what it says in verse 17, simply that God rescued him. David says God rescued him. How did he rescue him? Well, David sees it in a glorious, symbol-filled sort of way. It's like God shook the earth. It's like God bombed him with, with fireballs. It's like he burnt them with the hot smoke of his nose. It's like God rode in on an angel. And he blew in on the wind. God is personified in this psalm with thunder, with lightning, with volcanoes, with earthquakes, hailstorms. That means in part that the upheavals of this world, this creation, are not just unfortunate. Neither are they just necessary as part of keeping the equilibrium of this earth and this universe. But actually they're here as a fingerprint to show us something of God's power, to remind us something of of judgment to come. I wonder, do you have that kind of God that could be, that should be rightly personified in such fierce symbols? Do you have that kind of God that's not just personified in Thomas Kincaid paintings, in baskets of puppies, in Hallmark sayings, but but a God who's violent? A God who is fearful. A God who is in the heavens. A God for whom it's a scary thing, with whom it's a scary thing, should we have to encounter him 
without his mercy. Well, we not only have that kind of God, whether we want to admit it or not, but we need that kind of God, and we need to see that kind of God. You know, sometimes seasons of life are relatively easy and steady. Maybe you're in one of those right now. Things are going pretty well. You're not as bad off as others. This hasn't happened to you. That hasn't hit your family quite like someone else's. Sometimes we don't feel like we need God to ride in on an angel, on a cloud, and shake the ground of our little world, turn things over and pull us up out of the water. And in those times, what we really want, quite frankly, is for God to mind his own business, to not shake things up, to not mess with this. It's steady. Let's just leave that one alone. To not, to not do something here. To not intervene when it's going well. But it's harder to need him to see that we need him when things are running so smoothly. That's why Proverbs says, Lord, don't make me so poor that I am tempted to steal, but don't make me so rich that I, what? I forget you. We can be rich enough that practically speaking, we forget him. So remember, this principle the next time you're in a particularly difficult season of suffering, doubt, anguish, opposition. Remember it in any trial, small or big, that it's good for us to be in that place where dependence is natural, where need is apparent, undeniable, in your face. And we talk to him about it where we need him to ride in on a storm and shake this world up. Oh, it's certainly a hard thing to be in those seasons of life, but it's not a bad thing when we don't just need him to tweak this, improve that, keep this steady, give that one a little nudge, but we need him to come in and give our life an earthquake when the cords of death have entangled us. That's the language of verse 4. God is in it and has purposes for it when we feel like we are wrapped in the cords of death. We also see in this psalm, this song, that the Lord humbles. This section, verses 20 to 30, might seem confusing for those of us who know and love the gospel that Jesus died in our place to forgive us and we can't earn that forgiveness by working. We can't earn that forgiveness by being righteous or by our faithfulness. This section might seem confusing because it sounds like David is banking a lot on his righteousness and his faithfulness. Let me just read a few verses to show you. Look at verse 20. He says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Immediately, the gospel alarm should go off and, ah, what? R really? I don't want the Lord to deal with me according to my righteousness. I'd be in trouble. 
In fact, he goes on. It's not just one little phrase. He says, he's dealt with me according to the cleanness of my hands. That's how he's rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from guilt. And that's how the Lord, he says, rewarded me. And how he was merciful to me. And how he protected me in the midst of these battles. Now, how should we understand these verses? Well, a few things, I think, will help us understand these verses in light of the gospel so that they make sense. We have to keep in mind when we read these kind of verses about their righteousness, Psalms, whether it be David or another psalmist, talking about their own righteousness, their own faithfulness, we have to remember that God already promised to do what they're talking about here. For instance, in David's case, God had already promised to bless David and to bless the nation. God had already promised to protect them in battle. God had already promised to to make a way among the nations for them. God promised that. And God's blessings and promises came to a poor shepherd boy, the least of the eight brothers, the one whom the the father didn't even think would be worth considering. So whatever David's words mean in the middle of this psalm, Psalm 18, we know that they don't mean that God's plan is sort of a simple reward system. You do this, you get this much reward. You do that, sin, oh, you you get this much trouble. No, it's not a simple reward system. God promises, God accomplishes. We should also say this, that, that David and other psalmists certainly don't believe that they're perfectly righteous, even though at times they sound like they might be saying that. We have to remember well, Psalm 14 being one example. Look back at that. Psalm 14, verse 2. It's David here who says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Nope. They all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And David doesn't mean there is none who does good except one, me. He includes himself in this. Psalm 143. No one, is, no one living is righteous before you. Not the people of God. Not that nation. Not David. We can read of David's testimony in Psalm 51 about his own sin, a psalm of repentance. We could read in Psalm 32, David's testimony about how he's accepted with the Lord. There he says the Lord didn't deal with him according to his sins, even though here in Psalm 18 he says the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Somehow they go together, but it certainly isn't that they go together by thinking that David sees himself as perfectly righteous. No, what he means in part is that he's relatively righteous. There is something about relative righteousness. Not as a means of getting favor with God, but as God deals with people, there is something about being on the Lord's side, right? There is something about identifying with him. And there is something about acknowledging that any righteousness that we have is a gift from God. 
Our friend Fred Zaspel had a great blog post this week which, which relates to this, which relates to David's greatness. Fred wrote, Whatever measure of greatness we have, or David, physical, moral, political, societal, financial, we have it because God has condescended to share it with us. The more we do for God, the more we are indebted to God for the honor of it. So that's a good lens to put over what we're reading in Psalm 18 about David's righteousness and David's faithfulness. David would say, the Lord gives righteousness. The Lord has been faithful. And so in a sense, all it's doing is testifying to a God-given humility. It looks like the opposite, right? It looks like, it looks like pride. It looks like self-righteousness say, to say that the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. But what David means is the Lord has dealt with me according to my trust of him, my identification with him, my belief in his promises. It's the furthest thing from proud, self-righteous, self-reliance. David, he is here confessing that God must do it, and he believes it, and he'll keep believing it. And then we see this last section of the psalm, I'm sorry, the song of David's deliverance. We see that the Lord helps. The Lord helps. He hears, he intervenes, he humbles, and he helps. So notice in your outline, if verses 20 to 30, what we call God intervening, are like a cosmic, heavenly, symbol-loaded description of God's intervention, him coming down and rescuing and giving retribution to the enemies. Then this section, verses 31 to 48, are the same account, but from a different perspective. This is from the perspective of a, well, from David's own experience. It's a human perspective. It's not a top-down experience. It's, it's from his own position. So let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 36. Where there David says, to God, you gave a wide place for my steps under me. It wasn't tight, it was wide. Enough room to move around. My feet didn't slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You see, this is all very physical, isn't it? I mean, David even speaks of his feet in verse 33. He speaks of his hands in verse 34. He speaks of his arms in verse 36. He's really speaking of his ankle. It's literally, he keeps me from twisting my ankle which for our lazy suburbanite context, it might, you might think, oh, yeah, that is bad, twisting your ankle in the middle of the night as you try to walk to the living room floor and step on a toy. You got to limp the next day when you go to work. This is battle, right? You twist your ankle in the battlefield, and you're a goner. He keeps me from twisting my ankle. Now, notice the two different accounts one toward the beginning of the psalm, and then one here towards the end of the psalm. Two different accounts of God hearing and intervening and rescuing. 
One is glorious and majestic, right? God cracked open the heavens. He came down riding on an angel, riding the wind, and the smoke of his nose burnt up his enemies. He threw fire hail, earthquakes, volcanoes. He was in a dark rain cloud as he came. And then the other description here is what we call providence. It's just God helping. It's God orchestrating. It doesn't look miraculous or special or powerful. In a sense, it's invisible. But David sees God's invisible help, get this, as pictured in this powerful, glorious symbol-loaded way. He's not talking about two different things. He's not talking about one battle where God showed up and he really kicked the butt of the Gibeonites or the Philistines. But then there was another time where he just helped me. So, you know, it was, I stepped on a rock and I moved to the side and just then an arrow went past me and I went, whoa, how'd that happen? Thank you, Lord. Providence. No, no, no. He's talking about the same thing. There are two layers, and both are very real. He sees God's ordinary means of protection, provision, and care, and victory as being earth-shattering, victorious, glorious, majestic, and and scary. I remember many years ago, someone gave us a car. In fact, we had two cars given to us in a period of a few years. We were pretty poor back then, and uh, you know, poor enough to not be able to afford a, a car. Um, poor enough that you, you know, we wondered where sometimes where meals would come from that month. Um, didn't have health insurance, and and so a car. When someone gives you a car. These weren't fancy cars, but these were cars. They, they, they went. You hit the gas pedal and it drove. <laughs> I remember some friends would say things like, I can't believe someone gave you a car. Well, I wish someone would do that for me. I remember thinking, if not saying, the Lord has done it for you. He's done it through more ordinary means, perhaps. He's done it through a job and through a paycheck and provision and the wisdom of budgeting and in buying a good deal. All that is his handiwork. All that is part of his care for you. And sometimes he uses ordinary means and sometimes he uses special means and sometimes it's just miraculous. No one even gave it to you. A car fell down from the sky. Well, I don't, I don't know if anyone's ever had that happen, but... But he has at times rained bread down from the sky for his people or produced water from the rock in the middle of the desert. Sometimes it's miraculous. Sometimes it's ordinary. And it's all from him. That's what it means when it says the Lord helps. It's not just that he helps. David thinks that God has intervened in such an invisible way. But behind the scenes, God has stepped down from his throne. He's flown, flown down on an angel, and he has accomplished it himself. 
And this leads then to what you have as the fourth section in your notes, concluding praise. Concluding praise. The last two verses are a conclusion of praise. God delivered David from the ungodly. We see that in verse 50. We'll start there and then read verse 49 after. But read verse 50 with me. It says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. God delivered David from the ungodly. Whether that be the foreign nations of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, or whether that be the in-house enemies of Saul and even his own son, Absalom. It means that what God promised, he eventually did, but he fulfilled it through a rather complicated and slow-going means, didn't he? Again, remember, it's about 50 years from the first anointing of the 15-year-old king until he writes this psalm of praise and can say, the Lord has done it. But it's not just that God delivered David from the ungodly. There's a hint at the end of this psalm that says, basically, that God delivered David for the ungodly. Look at verse 49. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Now, why do I say God delivered David for the ungodly? Well, remember verse 50 says that God shows his steadfast love, not just to the anointed, who is David, but to David and his offspring forever. And it's not just David's offspring, but it's also, by extension, to these nations referred to in verse 49. Now, how we know this is because Paul quotes verse 49 in Romans 15. Let me show it to you in context here. Romans 15, verse 8, Paul says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised of the Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the early fathers, in order that the Gentiles, the nations might glorify God for his mercy, as it's written, quoting Psalm 18. Therefore, I'll praise you among the nations and sing to your name. And there in context, in Romans 15, Paul uniquely, almost oddly, gives three quick more quotations from the Old Testament related to this one. Four total. Here are the other three. He quotes... Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And then says, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And then another quote, In him will the Gentiles hope. What's he doing? He's giving a sampler of Old Testament promises that that showed that coming is the day when the nations would have mercy and the nations would join with God's people, they would become God's people and join in God's worship. That's the culmination. Paul sees that culmination hinted at in Psalm 18, but there's a lot in between. How do we get there? 
we've got to back up and remember big picture, right? We have to always tie this into the big picture. We have to remember that we all have need. That's why David wrote Psalm 18. He had need. He saw himself needy. He saw himself bound with the cords of death. We all have need, even if we're mistaken about what that need is or who the enemy is. Ultimately, the enemy is sin and Satan. Sin entered this world and its effects have splintered in a thousand directions. And look around, we keep trying to address the effects of sin and try to ignore that the problem behind each of these is sin. We need real help, don't we? There's such disillusionment out there right now. And rightfully so, that's a good thing. Because here's, here are the two extremes, or here's, we could say, maybe the cycle that keeps happening. You see this in our culture all the time, where we lavish praise on someone, this politician, this artist. We almost deify them. But then there's quick disillusionment. You know, his promises didn't add up. He's not just less than we thought. We hate him. You know? Joe Paterno isn't what we thought, you might think. And so there's this, right? There's this anger about what happened at Penn State. Where do we turn when all the heroes just come up short? What do you do when your guy is shown to be exactly what he is, a fallen sinner who really can't change much after all? Oh, what we're all scratching for, what we're all perhaps in sin trying to ignore is that Jesus is the real help. Jesus came and he defeated the real enemy. The real enemy is not the other party. Just like in David's time, the real enemy wasn't the Gibeonites, the Philistines. David and Israel are just a picture of what's to come. And what's to come is that the real David, Jesus, his greater son, would come and reveal God's power and his salvation and even his judgment upon sin ultimately in the cross. No surprise then that at the cross, the earth quaked. The sky went dark. Why? God tore open heaven and he came down. He worked. He saved. He fixed. He gave. He protected. So now Jesus is our refuge, our shield, our horn, our rescue. You can read Psalm 18 with Jesus in mind, seeing David as just a foreshadow of the great David-like king to come, who is Jesus. Jesus has defeated the real enemies of Satan and sin. The enemy, as I said, is not the other party. The enemy is not your boss. The enemy is not your spouse. The enemy is not a frustrating neighbor. The enemy is 
Nothing less than Satan and sin and death and the curse. And in the cross and resurrection, those are defeated. So Christian, if you've entrusted your soul to this Savior and found a refuge in this, to this into this God, and keep entrusting your whole life to him. If you can commit your soul eternally to him, then you can commit today to him. You can commit tomorrow to him. You can trust him for your circumstances. Don't despise the hour of need. Don't despise those moments when you beg of him to crack open heaven and come down. So don't pray small things. Pray that he would do that. Pray that he would reveal himself in power and glory so that you'd know in every corner of your life that he's the Lord and there's none besides him. That he's great and greatly be praised. Don't pray he'd tweak it here and just nudge it there or just make this stop. But pray that he would do something special or ordinary. Because sometimes he reveals his glory and his power in special, miraculous ways. And sometimes he reveals his power and his glory in ordinary ways like Bible and church and Christian friends. Either way, pray for revival. Pray that we would get it. Pray that we would see the, the other layer. That when he provides, he's near. When he moves, he is shaken. That when he protects, he's a shield. He's a refuge. He's worthy to be praised when he whirls into our problems. And he's worthy to be praised when we wait on him in the midst of our problems. Do you believe that?